Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to These Times. I'm Tom McTague. This week we've got another special for you, an interview with Charles Moore, now Lord Moore, the author of Margaret Thatcher's authorised biography. Lord Moore is a journalist and a crossbench peer. Educated at Eton, he became editor of The Telegraph, The Spectator and The Sunday Telegraph and still writes for all three. One of the journalists he edited was one Boris Johnson, who when he became Prime Minister, raised him to a peerage in 2020. I hope you enjoy. So, Lord Moore, it's lovely to have you here with us. Thank you very much for coming in. Thank you. I thought we'd start with the biography, of course, the authorised biography of Mrs. Thatcher. It's an extraordinary project. I've had the pleasure of reading all three. I don't know how you did it, but it was like it took you 20 years to do this. Talk me through the sort of how daunting it must be to just begin such a project. Yes, particularly as I never written a book before. <laughs> really? Probably won't run right run afterwards. <laughs> I, bet, I bet not, yeah. Um, the, but it was very clear what needed to be done, not so clear about how to do it, because Lady Thatcher asked me to be her authorised biographer, and she very sensibly set conditions which were that she would not be allowed to read the book and it shouldn't appear in her lifetime. Right. Because otherwise she th- knew that people would think she was trying to control it. Yeah. And I must say, I feared that. I thought she would. Actually, she didn't at all. She was from my point of view, magnificently uninterested in it. She was keen that it be done, but then she did not in any way interfere or express any curiosity at all. But the question was, how long should it be? And that, of course, is dictated by partly by what publishers want, but also by the material. And the thing about being the authorised biographer and the first one to see all the material Mm -hmm. was it seemed very important, particularly with a woman like that who worked so hard in such detail for so long on so many things, it seemed very important to see and convey as much of the full record as one could. The, the testamentary evidence of the documents is uh, superb. And by the way, it won't happen anymore because of the internet age, so there aren't proper government records anymore. Explain that. In well, way. as Tony Blair says he, in his memoirs, he says the two things I most regret were 
the hunting ban and the Freedom of Information Act. To delight his uh, uh, yeah. supporters, I <laughs> yes. bet. Yeah. And, uh, and, and the reason he's against FOI, rightly, I think, obviously it is important to free up information if you can, is that it screws up government. Because if you know that a document you submit privately in government might at any time be exposed to the public mm-hmm. eye, you won't, you'll cover your tracks. You won't say things important and truthful in it. Yeah, that are controversial, difficult, and therefore that was partly what gave birth to sofa government. Because frightened of such records, people instead of agreeing things properly on paper with proper meetings and proper briefings, they'd sort of sidle up to one another and agree something which is of great importance, but not done according to proper governmental process. Right, and that's bad for government, and it's bad for the record of government. So you won't know how decisions were arrived at. And what was very beautiful about the old record, though obviously it tended to shy away from recording purely political things. Yes. For example, take the poll tax, which was very complicated. The idea that this was sometimes said this was a sort of peculiarity of Mrs. Thatcher. Actually, they'd all dip their fingers in the blood, all the cabinet, and a tremendous amount of work on it, huge amount of work on it, iteration after iteration, paper after paper from all the concerned people. And very interestingly, major objections, serious objections from Nigel Lawson, the Chancellor, which were overruled. And so you can really see government working then, or some might say with the case of politics, not working, but certainly yes. trying to do this and what they were thinking and why they thought it. And also, in her case, why it's so important in recording her, not only was she Prime Minister, but she wrote so many comments on the paper. Yeah, I loved um, reading about those she, comments, she underlining she, things. Exactly. And-, and she hardly ever sent her own memos. She hardly ever even dictated her own memos. She wrote scribble, scribble on the paper, often very in her very exclamatory style, and sometimes writing sort of feeble exclamation mark or whatever. <laughs> and then Charles Pohl or other private secretaries would, as it were, translate that into messages that went down the line, memos that went down the line. Yeah. So you can really see how she governs what she thinks what she's doing at any one time. And it's harder, in a sense, to peer behind the Blair government and into Blair yes. himself. Yeah. You know, because you don't... I still think there's something a little bit hidden about Tony Blair, actually, in a way that there isn't perhaps with Margaret Thatcher. Well, I think that's true. And I think... I don't think it's hidden in a sort of sense of something disreputable, but I think there's... Because Blair is as well-known an actor, it's a well-known thing about actors that sometimes when you get close to them in real life, they aren't quite there. They're only there when they're on stage. Right. And I think Tony Blair's a bit like that. Though he does have some serious beliefs, but nevertheless, I think he is a bit like that. Whereas Mrs. Thatcher had this, not quite true to say that what you saw is what you got. There were, for example, she always concealed how cunning she was. Oh, yes. But, yeah. but she, her beliefs and her sense of what she's trying to do and her incredible commitment to doing it that's always very apparent. And she could never really conceal her feelings or her thoughts, actually. There's a fantastic piece written in the late 1970s when she is leader of the opposition. It's in The Guardian. And it talks about these instincts that she has and her struggle to contain them. Mm. And the piece makes the point that she's evidently more right-wing. She's more conservative than her predecessor. But she was at great pains to try and ensure that she was presenting herself as moderate enough for the electorate. Mm. And she was absolutely focused on winning. She was at pains to stress that she she wasn't seeking a great bust up with the unions. Yeah. 
And actually, this piece says that the key to understanding her at this point is how determined she is to become prime minister. Yeah. And I think that's such an interesting and penetrating piece in The Guardian at the time because it got to something else about her character. She was ruthlessly committed to getting power and she would sort of dodge and weave to get there. Yes. And she was, though she found it difficult sometimes, she was disciplined. So yes. it was actually true that she didn't want to bust up with the unions. She wanted to defeat the union leaders, for sure. Hmm. But she didn't actually want to bust up. She just wanted to win. <laughs> and a bust up was dangerous. And luckily for her, really, Arthur Scargill did want to bust up because then he sort of put himself in the wrong with the minor strike, not refusing a ballot and so on. Mm -hmm. And it could be seen, and it was important that it was seen, that Mrs. Thatcher was not going flat out to destroy the pits, and indeed she strongly supported the working miners. It was Scargill who declared that he wished to bring down the government. And so the, her discipline paid off, as indeed did her discipline about preparing coal stocks for what, for what she thought would happen. And this is in a way what I mean by saying that she's was cunning. She always sold herself as a conviction politician, and she was. But any old fool can be a conviction politician. You just state your convictions, and they're not very interesting. The question is, how do you act according to your convictions in an effective manner? Absolutely. And that's what she did. And in the book, you sort of uh, talk about the difference between, say, herself and Enoch Powell. In fact, he was a, obviously a conviction politician. But he wasn't cunning enough. He wanted to be Conservative Party leader and Prime Minister, but he wasn't able yeah. to do it. Whereas she was disciplined enough and she was instinctively Eurosceptic, but she sat there with Edward Heath during the 1975 referendum and said that I will continue his great work. He is the, how did she describe him at the time? I think she um, was very the, complimentary, wasn't it? Something like the master of ceremonies it, it or was the, like the, master, the maestro it, yeah. or, you know, that sort of thing. Abs absolutely. Yeah. And I, I look back and there's almost smile at that, uh, yeah. you know, she's, she's there off to the side on the stage saying that Edward Heath is the yes. great master. And then obviously she yes. would, the future would be something quite different. Uh, Henry Kissinger has this observation about politicians that has always stuck with me, that when a decision reaches their desk, a prime minister or a president, it's really a very difficult decision. It's a sort of 51-49 decision, mm. even perhaps more tight than that, you know, 50.01 decision. Because everything else has already been, if it's an 80-20 decision, it's been taken by a civil servant yeah. lower down the line until you get to a decision that nobody else is allowed to make because they're too difficult. So it has to be for the leader. And at that point, they not only have to make a difficult decision, but they have to make a decision without all the information available to them often. So they have to step out in front of the situation and risk making the wrong judgment. And so... A president and prime minister always have to fall back on instincts and things that are buried deep within them because they are relying on judgment rather than being able to observe all the facts. And I think you can see that with some prime ministers who are committed, honourable people who are just not able to make those judgments. They need to have all the facts available. And then by that point, the crisis has moved on. And so I, I think it's always absolutely crucial to understand the kind of where the instincts come from in a leader. And with Mrs. Thatcher, I thought your opening chapters about her upbringing in Grantham are absolutely fascinating on this point, because they seem to just be there 
deep within her for her whole life. And there are her father's Methodism, essentially, as, as far as I can see. That just never goes. I think that is basically right. And I think she said something to the effect that I knew what I believed from the age of 17. And then I spent the rest of my life sort of acting upon it. Right. But what that underrates is her strong worldly ambition as well as her beliefs. She was a relatively conformist as she rose through the Tory party. After all, though I think her ambitions were always of the highest kind, she could never say, even privately, I want to be prime minister when she's an MP in the 1960s. A woman prime minister still would be regarded as a joke. And so she had those convictions that you've described and was faithful to them, but she also wanted to get on as much as she could. And it was only really, and this I think was the moment when greatness touched her on the shoulder, when she realised she could challenge Ted Heath and she dared to do it. Yes. Towards the end of 1974 and the vote in February 75. And then you see the person moving from a fairly successful, well, very successful for a woman at the time, political career, to a sort of quite different level. And she's doing it by acting on her beliefs and picking the right moment. And of course, being that was very brave because the entire Tory establishment was against her. Why on earth should she get it when Heath had been prime minister and so on? And she only did it because Keith Joseph faltered. Although you do make the point that she really wanted it. She, oh, yes. And I, indeed, I, that's why she did it and he didn't, because he didn't really want it. Yes. But nevertheless, if he had persisted, she would not have... But there was some kind of cunning at that point, oh, yes. wasn't there? there oh, was, yes, because oh, yes, you can see her watching and thinking about this. And she was totally loyal to Joseph, but she was also absolutely ready to and keen to take over if he faltered. Yeah. And her public statements about this, that, you know, mm. that she, she was almost dragged to it out of a sense of duty. That's not really quite right. No, it isn't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, what also strikes me when I go back and I read about this period of time, say the 1975 election, and our perception of Mrs. Thatcher now as this obviously ideological conservative who would take the party and the country in a, in a very different direction. At the time, she wasn't the right-wing candidate in the 75 election. It was Hugh Fraser, who's a sort of backbench MP, and he represented this sort of old Toryism, romantic old Toryism. And he wrote pamphlets and speeches at the time saying that she just represents continuity. She was a member of the Edward Heath government. Enoch Powell made the same point, I think, in the in 75 how can we trust this woman when she has sat there through all of the flip-flopping yeah. of Edward Heath that she now is criticising? And it's just so fascinating to see the different perceptions at the time. And I suppose that exposes a little bit of the cunning as well. It does. And also, I think she did change her mind in by the experience of government under Heath, because she did think when they won in 1970 and she came into the cabinet that the Tories were on the right track. And at that time, Heath was much more of a free market man and so on. Oh, he said he was. But and again, his instincts were probably well, indeed, not Indeed, I think you're right about that. But still, it was moving in that direction. And that all collapsed with prices and incomes policies and all the rest of it and inflation yeah. and minor strikes. And, and so Mrs. Thatcher had a nasty shock because I think she thought that the Conservatives were sort of inevitably dominant until then. And then she realized, actually, we really could lose to socialism. We could use to lose globally to Soviet communism and we could lose... Britain to socialism. And so a combination of her ambition and her zeal for free markets and liberty and so on, and her dislike of socialism all came together. And you can see her sort of blossoming 
when that happens. And then you see how deep actually is her difference in character and approach from that of Heath. And there are some people who say that her instincts are less kind of Tory and more almost Gladstonian in in her belief in free markets, in her religiosity, those kind of instincts. And I think even somebody like, say, John Casey, who is at the Conservative Philosophy Group, which was a which is a really interesting group in the late 1970s, trying to formulate a new conservatism, or perhaps just an old conservatism, but to challenge the orthodoxy of the time that Mrs. Thatcher was involved in herself. He has this line that she was a more of a kind of Republican conservative than a traditional Tory conservative. How do you see it? Yes, I I know John very well and often a great friend and often discuss such matters. I don't really agree with him. I think that she was a real conservative. Obviously, she wasn't a sort of high Tory like the 19th century Lord Salisbury, but she was in the conservative tradition, particularly when you bear in mind that the Liberal Party had more or less collapsed. And so some aspects of the Liberal Party had come into the Conservative Party. I mean, they literally came into the Conservative Party through liberal unionism long before she was in politics. So I think so. There is an element. There of is that. an element of that, but but I think she was a Tory. She did actually have great reverence for British history and British institutions. It is the is it the and, romance that makes her a Tory? Like um, there is a kind of romance. Yes, yeah, so there is a romance, and there is. She was not at all. I think some of her critics would say she was sort of economic desiccated calculating machine, and that's not the case. I think she was very interested in what. In she had a romantic idea of the history of this country and a sort of romantic idea of the capacities of the British people. Yeah. And she also very strong idea of the sort of thing that's locked in British people, which held them back, like too much government control, too much trade union power, too much government interference, and so on. And that they could have a greater fulfillment in a society which was traditional, but also reforming. I mean, the two things go together. So I would say she was definitely a mainstream Tory, though what she didn't have which was helpful, I think, to her politically, was she didn't think people who were always in government. She was fascinated by government and in some ways extremely good at it. And of course, she was in it as prime minister for longer than anybody else in modern times. But she, you can often tell by the way prime ministers talk that they're really thinking about the government and what the government needs. And then the really successful ones somehow go beyond that to thinking about the people and the nation and that's why they didn't communicate that. So Blair was very good at communicating that, for example. And I think Mrs. May wasn't very good at it, and Brown wasn't very good at it, and possibly Rishi Sunak is not terribly good at it, because they're starting to think, <laughs> yeah. they're sort of getting imprisoned in a governmental mentality. And what you always see with Mrs. Thatcher, though nobody knew more than she about what the policies were, is what's this about as far as everybody's concerned? And uh, that's very powerful, because it means that whether you like them or not, and again, Blair had this quality, they can reach the people. When they say things, people understand what they're saying. And um, and I think it also means they're not corrupted by government. They may be corrupted by power. They may become too arrogant or whatever, but they're not corrupted by a sort of governmental attitude, which is, oh, yes, minister, but it can't be done sort of right. thing. That's interesting because I, 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 we had Lord Polin a few weeks ago to talk about many of these things and and he had this notion that she had perhaps gone on slightly too long and he, yeah. had, he had written a, 
a note to that effect that he said he'd forgotten about and was re- reminded years later. Reminded by me, actually. So I found the note. <laughs> was it? Put it at the end of my second volume. It's the way I end my second volume, yes. Do you think that's right? Was there a sort of period where she was at her greatest kind of power and influence? There was a decline at some point, and it's to do with corruption by power rather than government. Yes, I think she never did succumb to the governmental mentality, but she did rather succumb to the I know best mentality. When, when, do, you t- when um, do you time that? I think given that prime ministers have a very short window of opportunity, really, I think hers was pretty long because I think she was c- completely on top and successfully so from victory in the Falklands War in 1982 yeah. to probably 1988 maybe even early 89. The 10th anniversary of her time in office was May 89, and she definitely was in trouble by then. And Dennis noticed that and privately told her to go. You've got the 10th anniversary, go. And she said, yes, I will. And then, of course, she didn't want to, and she slid out of it. Why was she in trouble? People were getting fed up about the effects of the Lawson boom going wrong. There was already a lot of rumbling about the community charged the poll tax. And there was a feeling of anno domini. When a prime minister has been in for 10 years, obviously people celebrate it, but they also think, my goodness, 10 years. And her colleagues were getting very restless for that reason too. Her senior colleagues mustn't neglect the obvious fact that they, after a bit when the prime prime minister has been in, her colleagues want, or his colleagues, want her to go. Yeah. Um, And they were being balked and some of them was falling by the wayside. And also, the, the European rows were getting more and more acrimonious. And there was a clear difference about Europe, which is essentially the same clear difference as has been ever since, and indeed existed before, but was really coming into focus from from 1988, if not before. Well, it um, comes to focus very clearly in, with the Bruges speech, yeah. that obviously Lord Pole wrote. Yeah, um, September 88. Yeah. And this is a tension I find fascinating about, about Mrs. Thatcher, in that she comes to the Conservative Party leadership in 1975 after the referendum in which she, she has campaigned to for Britain to stay in the common market. She is the Prime Minister who probably takes Britain furthest in, in terms of the 1986 Single Market Act, which is a, a giveaway of sovereignty in that it requires majority voting in, in Europe, which means Britain loses a veto. And yet, very quickly, all her instincts are Eurosceptic. She's instinctively Eurosceptic. She is from the moment she comes in as prime minister and she's battling for to get her money back, as she put it, and successfully got the rebate. And yet I have this sense that she puts it to one side. She doesn't really want to confront this tension about sovereignty that is there and only really comes out right towards the end and it's inevitable that it's going to come out because she has a different starting point than some of her colleagues. And then you can almost see it coming out once she's free of power. It becomes yes. much more, she, she expresses it much more clearly. I think you're, you're quite right, though I think her views did, to some extent, alter. She definitely was in favour. She wasn't just pretending. She was in favour of staying in the referendum of 75. But she never was a European a worshipper at the European shrine. So she saw it in more transactional terms. But that was okay in 1975 in the way that people were talking about these things. She was instinctively drawn to Enoch Powell's attacks on it, even then, but didn't want to sort of 
think too hard about that. She was thinking more about economic advantages and, of course, holding the party together. And That's so um, different to the way she approaches many other issues. Well, one you know. thing at a time. I think perhaps she would have said if she'd... The most important thing she was doing from 1979 until mid-80s was economic change and the trade unions. And that can more or less be done. There's tension about the ERM membership. That can more or less be done without reference to European issues. And that's the really important thing for her to do, inflation, strikes. It was a kind of secondary issue, but by the time, by the end of her premiership, it was a, a first order issue. Yes. And the other point to make is that, and you're right about the Single European Act, is that she, prime ministers tend to think that if they're in, if they're in charge, things are going to be all right. So her... She could hold back the tide. She is. And people flattered her to think that. And it was, of course, quite an achievement to, to achieve the single market because many European leaders didn't want it at all because they didn't like the idea of, a, of an open market within Europe. So she could... This much more pro-European civil servants and politicians than she could represent to her that it was a great triumph. And in a certain sense, it was. However, you're right, there was a latent problem. And indeed, I remember this vividly because I was editing The Spectator at the time, and we were the, it shows how the mood has changed. We were the only national publication against the Single European Act, the only one. Yes, um, Spectator we were, was we also were, against the we, membership. Spectator was also against yes, membership in it 17. Was under, in a, right. It was, that's true. And, and we couldn't really get traction on the sovereignty issue at the time. It was, And Mrs. Thatcher didn't give any countenance to it, though you knew she ha- did think about it a bit. She thought about it. But again, I think she's representative of the general sense in Britain ever since Macmillan, really, that we didn't want to confront the nature of what Europe was and the sort of the noble noble aspirations of Jean Monnet's project. This was a supranational project and it had a certain logic to it. And a lot of politicians who were in favour didn't want to confront that issue and it was really that there was people like Michael Foote on the left who grasped it quite quite clearly. Yeah. But I just I what strikes me is just how Mrs. Thatcher must have grasped it herself because she was clearly clearly on top of it, but she just didn't want to confront well, it. Well, I think a very important factor in this is the rise of Jacques Delors, because as long as she was only dealing with other leaders, this was like Mitterrand Cole, etc., even if their views are very different, dealing with other leaders who are on an equality with her, that's fine for her. That's the language she understands. When this person who she would say is unelected, jumped up character who comes in and says, I'm the president of Europe... Yes. That's absolutely red rag to the bull to her. And then she thinks, oh, there really is a plan for pan-European government. And, and indeed there was, because economic and monetary union and political union. And it's really Delors that gets her going. But even then, the Bruges speech is not, strictly speaking, which is September 88, is not, strictly speaking, a, a, a Brexit speech. No, um, Lord Powell's very clear. I mean, it really isn't. And he drafted it, uh, Charles Pearl. Um, it's a wider, looser Europe speech. And it's particularly to be seen in the context of the Cold War, because she saw that the Cold War was coming to an end. And so she says, we must never forget that Prague, Warsaw and Budapest are great European cities. So what she's arguing against is a little Europe, little Western European community. Let's get the whole continent, to use George Bush Sr.'s later phrase, whole and free, Europe whole and free. And she is sounding the speech does sound a, a bell about sovereignty, but that's not, it's not the same as a get out argument at that point. No, what interests me is, in a sense, Mrs. Thatcher is a radical on domestic policy. 
and her election marks a clear turning point in a way. I mean, I think I think there are people like Dominic Samrock who will point out that James Callaghan was talking about some of the things that Mrs. Thatcher would then do in, in, in the 80s. And I, and I think that's true. But on Europe, we've had lots of prime ministers who would make speeches and come up with proposals that sound sensible, but would be rejected by their European counterparts. Harold Macmillan wanting a free trade zone, all the way up to the hard AQ and all, and all of that. These are grand ideas but they bump up against the reality of a project that's going in a different way. And I, and I suppose Mrs. Thatcher made that speech, but n- none of it came to pass, really, I suppose, other than the other than Europe expanding to the east. Which was very important and is now proving extremely important, that expansion, because of Ukraine's brought that out. So what Putin has succeeded in bringing about, <laughs> contrary to his wishes, is the sort of European unity, which Mrs. Satch was talking about in reference to Eastern Europe. Yeah. And then when she leaves office, Lord Pohl was quite clear in a way. He thinks that if she had stayed in office, power would have made her realistic in his view about Europe and she wouldn't have been a, a lever. But in later life, she clearly was in favour. She certainly said to people that she was in favour of leaving. Where do you stand on that? I never like to do the what would she if, because one just doesn't know. But it's perfectly true that when she left office, Charles actually, I think he denies this, but and maybe she was slightly picking who she was talking to, because of course Charles is pro-European. But she certainly and specifically said to me and many others that we should leave. No question about that. Was this before or after no, Maastricht? No, after, after, after office. Okay. And um, was it because of Maastricht or because of... Uh, yes, Maastricht was certainly the, probably the catalyst she never said it publicly because she was strongly advised not to because of the divisive effects. But I never real... stopped her before. <laughs> it is, you're right, and it is quite surprising. But I think she saw that it was just, it was just too much to take on when you're by then. But the thing that showed strongly the way she was going when she was still in office was that in interviews when she was fighting for her career in November 1990, one with, I think, with Simon Jenkins and one with me, she raised, without any consultation with colleagues, the idea of a referendum. And the referendum would have been uh, on whether we should um, save the pound or words to that effect. It would have been on the single currency membership of. But that's really a proxy for the whole thing. From then on, the referendum idea, which had been banished since 1975, re-entered the political bloodstream. And then you get Jimmy Goldsmith and all that in the 1990s. And Goldsmith's vote was insignificant, but the threat was enough to persuade all the main political parties to promise referendums, versions of referendums on versions of the subject. And then that got entrenched in the conservative promises. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. 
Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I think you could trace Euro, yeah. the Eurosceptic movement to her removal in in 1990, you then had the Bruges group that was set up because of in, in honour of her speech and campaigning for the Europe that she wanted but couldn't deliver. You then had UKIP that was formed as, a, as another form of that. And then, you, as you say, you had the referendum party that emerged and then ended in, in 97. And so you had, as I see it, you had all of these various movements that were outside of the Conservative Party. And they stay outside of the Conservative Party all the way up until... 2019, really. And then they are brought back in under Boris Johnson. And that's really what gives them the sort of 40% plus. Yes. And it explains one of the great difficulties about the referendum result, which is that because people sometimes say, look, the Leave campaign promised us this, forgetting that the Leave campaign wasn't a government. The Leave campaign could say what it liked about what it might be like when you leave, but it's not it, not in its power having one to implement it because you have to have a government to implement it. And that's um, not an argument against referendums. It is in a way. It is in a way, but that's the fact of the matter. And so that's the great struggle in 2019 was to get a government which would implement. And it's only then that it really becomes the Conservatives' responsibility to have a full Eurosceptic policy. Until then, or full Brexit policy, if you like. And until then, this was always ambiguous. Yeah. And that's why there was a tremendous bust up at the end. And it was why Boris won, of course, because what he was saying was, we must give people what they voted for. Yes. I mean, and we should turn to Boris now, of course, who've followed you at The Spectator. Not immediately, but yes. Yeah. And then you've employed him. You've been his boss. You were a supporter of him. I think there was one point you said that he was the type of person who'd be terrible at any other job in government, apart from perhaps being prime minister. Mm. How do you look back at his premiership now? Well, with mixed feelings, I think the sort of cliche is correct that he did, his great achievements were that without him, the referendum wouldn't have been won. And without him, the 2019 election wouldn't have been won. And therefore, without him, Brexit would not have been achieved. So that's very important, whether you like it or not, because of his special skills and his sort of ability to get outside normal politics. And then, of course, COVID came along and therefore everything changed and he wasn't able to govern in the way that he expected. And in many ways, he didn't know how to govern when it happened. And though he can rightly be criticised for that, nor did anybody else, it must be said. So, you know, it's a completely a shock from nowhere. But there's a, when you compare, say, Mrs Thatcher to, to Boris Johnson, there is, there, there is a, a, such an obvious shallowness to Johnson's premiership once you got past the Brexit referendum. And as you say, he didn't know how to cope with COVID and was co- completely conflicted about it. I mean, look, lots of people were conflicted about what to mm. do with that. But I think what's most telling is that he almost accidentally alighted on this idea of levelling up as the answer to Brexit. It was the message that could unite the Conservative Party, create a new coalition of voters that could stabilise the country. And it was popular, but it well, didn't have a depth of support within the Conservative Party as Liz Truss's election uh, after he left showed. His kind of big state Toryism 
didn't have the party's backing either. And he just didn't seem to know what it meant in practice. Well, of course, you're right that Boris, the extremely intelligent, doesn't have a sort of conscientious, careful mind that tries to work things through. A completely different character from Mrs. Thatcher, both for better and for worse. And obviously, I would agree with you if you're saying that Mrs. Thatcher is a greater statesman than Boris. <laughs> I think most but, people uh, would say that. <laughs> but I do think Boris is a very remarkable politician and totally outclassed his opponents when he really needed to. And that should be recognised. And because he's in a low point now and he's to some extent in disgrace and and has made lots of other mistakes, people are inclined to forget that. But I think when you look back on it, you will see he just wiped the floor with all these other people who were in his own party and in other parties. Do you think there um, is a chance then that he will come back? Because these are still the people that are... I think interested. there is a chance because the whole sort of Boris thing is when he's up, he falls and when he's down, he pops up again. I wouldn't rule it out. I'm not saying I would welcome it. It may well be that he's had his day, but then again, I wouldn't like to say that for definite. I think that he's just very different from everybody else who's got to the top of this country in in my lifetime. And um, in what in what what's the the key difference? Well, he's so profoundly unconventional, and that's not wholly a good thing, by the way, because conventions are important. And if he'd stuck to the conventions, he might uh, still be prime but, minister. But on the other hand, he might never have become prime minister if he had stuck to the conventions. So you have to. It's always this both sides of the argument when thinking of him. I do rate very highly. The, it's an obvious point, but somehow it gets missed. The people who get most criticised in the last forty years in British politics. Uh, Mrs. Thatcher, Tony Blair and Boris Johnson. And what do they have in common, among other things? Winning elections. And this is often held against them by the sort of political class. There's almost a jealousy and envy there. Yeah. And, and the, actually, why don't people spend more time bashing up John Major or Gordon Brown or Theresa May, people who can't win elections? Or sorry, that's not fair to John Major. He did win uh, one election. But you see what I mean? But it does seem that the uh, worst prime ministers tend to be the most highly regarded in later life. Apart, I think Johnson, though, was a poor prime minister in that he lost power within three years. Yes, I think he was both a very good and a very bad prime minister. And that's an unusual combination. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, so, so let, let's talk, turn to the future now, because it, I, you could trace your own biography in a way, uh, uh, telling the Conservative Party's ups and downs and conservatism through, you were at Cambridge in the 70s, where you had this sort of Peterhouse movement, a group of people who became very influential in I wasn't shape. at P- I wasn't at Peterhouse by the way, but I was at the Great Whig College Trinity. Oh, but you knew <laughs> yeah, all of that, those, yeah, all yeah. of those guys. Utley and Peregrine Worsone and all of those people who went on to have, to be in the Conservative Philosophy Group, actually, with Mrs. Thatcher and Enoch Powell and all of these all of these people who became very influential and created a kind of conservative counter movement to the prevailing ideas at the time. And I guess you look at the Conservative Party now, and there doesn't seem to be much intellectual gravitas. There doesn't seem to be much of much of an idea. Anymore, there doesn't seem to be many people in the party who have gravitas of them in themselves. Is that how is that how you see it as well? Yes, I think I do see that. Though I, you can never quite tell about gravitas people who have gravitas themselves until they have the chance. So I wouldn't necessarily say. Don't really agree with the view that this lot, all the people in the in politics now are useless. I think it's hard to see how that will go. Gravitas it, comes from just hanging on, from seizing the great opportunity. I think. 
one thing that's extremely difficult for the Tories now and is insoluble other than by defeat is that if you are in for a very long time, you are exhausted and people are fed up with you. And so Mrs. Thatcher came in because of the final collapse of the conservatism that had prevailed from really from the retirement of Churchill until the defeat of Heath in 74. And so that was exhausted and she rises out, out of that. And something or other will rise. It's, a, it's quite similar now because the Tories have been in for so long. The difference perhaps is that Labour, though certainly in a better shape than before, it has remarkably little sense of where it's going and what it wants to do, really. It doesn't have a sort of big analysis of the extraordinarily difficult problems we face. And therefore, you, I think there is a gap in the market for a rethought Toryism, but probably they're not certainly only after electoral defeat. That's how it normally works, the sort of rejuvenation that's required. But it often takes a long time. Yes, it could take a long time, yeah. Who do you see as people who could be the sort of the new Mrs. Thatcher? I don't see anybody like that, really. That's not to disparage anybody. I think it's very unlikely that anyone would have seen Mrs. Thatcher until about February 74. Do you see anyone with a kind of spark of an idea that you think could appeal to the same kind of coalition of voters that that Mrs. Thatcher was able to assemble? Uh, not really. I mean, you see bits of it sometimes expressed. Kemi Badenoch obviously appeals to some of that. But uh, I think there's sort of too little evidence, really, f- from anyone at this stage. One time, Michael Gove was generating a lot of the ideas, but that's probably not so true now. And he's Michael's now, he's actually now a been, goalist. He's been in office so long. He's still not very ill, but he, you would think he would be a sort of more like an elder statesman than he's been a cabinet minister for, I was just calculating this week, actually, I think he's been a Tory cabinet minister for longer than any Tory cabinet minister since Margaret Thatcher. And yet he hasn't held one of the great offices of state. No, but he's a vital person within government. But so there's that sort of person, one or two people of that sort of quite a weight of experience, Jeremy Hunt would be another one in a different way. But who the Thatcher type person is, which Presumably it will arise. I don't mean somebody who's actually like Mrs. Thatcher, but someone who has the Thatcher role of coming in with the new it is. It also that's, needs, that's, to me, undiscernible. But it also needs the environment which created yeah. Mrs. Thatcher. And again, I don't see it at the moment. I get, go back to the 70s and there was a sense of opportunity and ideas and sort of vibrancy in a way. It was obviously a very difficult decade. But I was I was speaking to Dominic Sandbrook about this, and he was saying that back then there was a sense, both on the left and the right, that something was going to change and I'm change not, for good. I'm not for good. really sure that's right, actually. I mean, it's, Dominic's right, of course, that there were people with interesting ideas and they were getting somewhere privately. But the sort of public space of discussion of all of this was really poor in um, in the 1970s until the sort of Thatcher breakthrough. So, that, for example, prices and incomes policy was complete orthodoxy mm. about what you're supposed to do about preventing inflation and calming down strikes and that sort of thing. It was being challenged by and, and Powell. It was challenged it? by Powell, but he was really very much, he had a considerable following, but he really was in the wilderness and uh, he wasn't going to get back and it was pretty stifling and the country was getting nowhere and so on. So I, in some respects, it was like that now. There was a feeling of there's a set of ideas which are prevailing, which are pretty useless, and we need to find something else. And that's similar today. Yeah, I think so, yeah. Yeah, I go back to this piece that I mentioned in The Guardian in the late 70s. It's a slightly left-field idea that I have that, that, in a sense, Keir Starmer himself is defined by his 
ruthless determination to get to the top. And he is, he is disciplined. He will do what he will say what is necessary to discipline the party and himself to offer the country the messages that he thinks are going to be popular. And yet underneath, it's very clear, like Mrs. Thatcher, that he is his instincts are to the left of what he is presenting to the country in the way that hers was to the right. And I wonder whether there is some kind of parallel between the two, odd as it may sound, that he as a prime minister will could take the country in a different, in a quite a different direction to the one we've been in for a while. I think you're right that his personal convictions are somewhat at variance with the way he's presenting himself now. Mm. But I don't really think he is a man driven by convictions. Though the thing about Mrs. Satchel was his tremendous desire to sort of preach and teach yeah. in order to act. Again, back to her, back yeah. to her, the, yeah. her upbringing. Not just preach and teach, but to create the circumstances in which you could act. And I don't see that with Starmer. What I see is he certainly does have some belief of a slightly sort of moralistic moralism in politics, that the sort of woke kind. But I don't really think that's what it's all about. I think he's just trying to win, which is fine. It's very important to try to win, essential. And how do I get there? And I think that's about what it amounts to. Can you ever really think of a Starmer speech? She was always trying to make people pay attention to her speeches when she was in opposition, and indeed most of the time. It's not really what he's doing. What he's doing is sort of getting himself in what seems to be a better position than before. I can't think that anybody would be excited by a concept or idea floated in a... Of course, Mrs. Thatcher was less popular as a candidate than James Callaghan in the the run-up to the 79 election. Yes. And so, again, it... Perhaps you don't need to be, you don't need to excite people now, but it's in the governing. Perhaps maybe... No, he may be doing the right thing tactically. I'm just saying it's not comparable, really. Right. Uh, or they are not comparable characters. No. I mean, perhaps he's more a kind of Angela Merkel figure. That, And this is, this. I wonder whether there is a danger for the Conservative Party here. And that Angela Merkel was a poor opposition leader, a poor campaigner, mm. but she governed in a way that just plonked herself in the centre and she was almost immovable. Mm. And you wonder whether the Conservative Party, if they're not careful and if they don't have a message of their own, an idea of what kind of country they're trying to create that is popular, that they could find themselves in that kind of position. They could. I think there's another danger which is afflicts the right more than the left of the Conservative Party, but is a problem for both, which is it's a modern problem, It's become very acute in modern times, which is just saying things without any real sense that they're going to do them. And um, and in the case of the Tory right, it'll be more rhetorically excited than the Tory centre. But fundamentally, it's a sense, and it's true with Labour as well, public get a depressing sense that it doesn't matter because it doesn't make any difference. And the words are dislocated from the actions. And this is what Rishi Sunak's facing such a big test, for example, on immigration right now, Mm. which he might pass. I'm not quite sure. Does he actually mean this or does he just simply wish to send out signals that he's in favour of immigration control? Or does he really want, you know, and that's sort of rather in the balance now. Do you think that's a reflection of society today, though, that we are a bit more cynical because we haven't had living standards improving in what 15 years since the 2008 crisis? People can't get on the housing ladder. Yes, that's right. They, f- they feel that actually... That's right, but all the more reason for, for leaders to develop a, a better approach. And that hasn't really come through. So it's fairly dire. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And then just finally, turning back to your biography, now that you're 
through with it. You've, you've sent it off into the world. What are the lessons, the absolute core lesson that you take from it? And what advice would you give to the Conservative Party or the Labour Party from Mrs. Thatcher's lifetime? I wouldn't like to sort of give lessons to a political party about what to do. But I do think the Thatcher example is very interesting because she's perhaps the first conservative leader who did, in the era of universal suffrage, try to weaponize ideas. And she didn't emerge from a very small elite of people who essentially decided who was going to lead the party. In that sense, she really was the first democratic leader of the Conservative Party and a mobiliser of a massive sort of collection of feelings and beliefs and interests and so on in the country. And that's very significant in the history of a parliamentary democracy, I think, and of this country. And then you come back to the most obvious thing, which is that she was the one, and at that time, the only woman. And everything's different as a result. Her whole attitude to things, her capacity to break rules, her capacity to get attention, her capacity to reach areas of politics that previous leaders hadn't been able to reach. As a form of leadership, I don't think she had a... Re Sometimes she's called a revolutionary. She didn't have a revolutionary ideology, but she did have a revolutionary political personality. And that's very bound up with her sex as well as her beliefs. And that's a pretty remarkable combination. And I find that when you go abroad to talk about Mrs. Thatcher, discussion of her here is slightly annoying because it tends to be too polarised between fans and enemies. And it's quite can be quite boring, that. In the outer rest of the world, people, on the whole, look favourably on her. But mainly, they're just interested. They mainly see, gosh, what a lot of difference. And particularly true in the United States and in the Far East and in Eastern Central Europe. Those are the places where they particularly think about that and generally tend to admire it. And of course, the Cold War, and that's very fascinating in relation to Ukraine now, because a lot of her attitudes about the Cold War and her fears for what might happen afterwards are very relevant now. And Ukrainians, for example, if you just use the words Mrs. Thatcher, their ears prick up. There's a sort of identification there. And it's to do with some idea of freedom and independence and a particular form of leadership. So what we need is a is another interesting person. That's the key. Yes, but for God's sake, not Thatcher imitators. I mean, they are the most terrible <laughs> the lot of... Uh, <laughs> but all imitators but Every are. women, it's very difficult for women if they're conservatives. People keep saying, is she a second Margaret Thatcher? No, don't try to be that. You know, uh, yeah. There's only one Margaret Thatcher... And it's quite inappropriate leadership style for our time. And learning from her, yes, imitating her, no. And for heaven's um, sake, do not try to imitate Boris. <laughs> yeah, that too. Yes, and they're both inimitable, actually, except by comedians, who are, they're both pure gold for comedians. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much for coming in. I've really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you, Tom. Me too. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to These Times. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and share with your friends and family. 